Good morning to you, Christ Central. It's uh, so good, so happy to see you in this first uh, Sunday worship service of, can you believe it, the year 2018? I pray and hope nothing but the fullness and the depths of God's blessings for all of us, all of you, in Christ Jesus. So on this first Sunday, if you have your Bibles, it's also going to be projected overhead. And I had a newfound conviction to actually provide more visual slides. So I hope that you are very expressive and responsive for the visual slides, which should enhance understanding and retention. But it'll, it'll be projected overhead. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. We're going to begin here. I've entitled it, Countless Acts of Steadfast Love. Okay, Countless Acts of Steadfast Love. Let's just begin with the first nine verses, and we're going to get through uh, 32 verses, but we'll begin with the first nine. Okay, let's give our attention to this. I'll read it, read it for us. In my Bible, it's entitled, Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisf satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Okay, so far, this is the reading of God's word from Psalm 107. Now, of course, we're already seven days into New Year's of uh, 2018. And, of course, it's appropriate, it's opportune to do some self-reflection, to grow in self-awareness. You don't have to be religious to know that self-awareness and self-reflection are key to personal growth. And if you Google around for famous quotes about self-reflection, I liked this one I found from Thomas Carlyle, quote, the greatest of faults is to be conscious of none. Okay, the greatest of faults is to be conscious of none. And the world is dead on right, that self-reflection and self-awareness is essential for us to improve. You can't improve or grow from things that you're not even aware of. But when you get to the Holy Scriptures, when you get to what we believe is the Word of God, the Bible is full of encouragement and tools and devices for self-reflection, for sure. It's better than any other book. But the way that God's Spirit wants you to get at a deeper, more life-giving self-reflection is by doing something else first. You don't just do self-reflection. The Bible calls for a God-reflection, God-word reflection. Because if indeed we were created by God, there is a designer maker, and we, each of us is made in the image of God, you can never arrive at a profound, life-giving, life-changing self-reflection without reflection upon your maker first. God reflection. It's one of the basic first stepping stones of all Christian theology. 
knowledge of yourself has to be derived or come first from knowledge of God. And that's exactly what this psalm is doing, along with so many other songs and poems throughout this book. We did not read verse 43, but here is what it reads. Whoever is wise, if you want to be wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider what? Attend and consider, think about, probe, evaluate what? Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So that's what we're going to do this morning. The entire psalm is talking about how the countless acts of steadfast love have been poured out upon the life of the psalmist. And the way that as a poet he arranges this psalm is very, very straightforward. He divides it into five strophes. Five strophes is basically a poetic device. It's like five paragraphs. The first is verses four through nine. The second is verses 10 through 16. The third is 17 through 22. The fourth is 23 to 32. And the fifth and final strophe or paragraph is verses 33 to the end. Today, we're just gonna cover the first four. The first four, okay? Because all first four strophes involve a pattern. They all start with the C. We found it in the first nine verses. First, there's a crisis, a desperate need, a crisis. Second, a cry to the Lord for his resolution or deliverance. And third, a call to give thanks. Always the pattern here, crisis, call, cry out to God. He delivers. And then third, a call to give thanks. That's the way we're going to approach this, soul, uh, this psalm. Here's the first strophe, verses four through nine. We just read it. It speaks of what is this crisis or need that the psalmist is suffering from. Verse four, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. That's the crisis. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been actually lost or desperate in a desert. You lost your way, you're running out of water, you don't have food, you don't have guidance, stress and panic starts to set in, and then the psalm goes on to say, their soul began to faint within them. That's a literal desert experience. But, of course, we're in poetry, we're in poetry. So with poetry, you can do a lot of things. There are figurative, of course, emotional, experiential seasons of life that very much feel like a desert. Do they not? where you feel very, very dry. There's constant drudgery or monotony. There's a sense it said some wandered, wandered. Have you ever felt in life that you're just wandering? It's, it, it's pointless, there's no purpose. Like why am I stuck in this job or with this person or in this situation? I don't know if there's ever gonna be a way out. And has anybody in this room ever reached the point in their lives where because of different tragedies or circumstances, you felt your soul fainting? I see, that's just poetic language for translation. You don't want to go on with life. Oh, but the psalmist recalls in that crisis, in the midst of a desert I cried out to God. I prayed to God. 
and he made my wandering ways straight. Then he concludes third, let us give thanks, let us give thanks for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a renowned pastor, very well-respected pastor by the name of Jack Miller. I would recommend any book he wrote. But in this particular book, it's a series of letters to younger pastors or young, soon-to-be future servant leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ. And one chapter is entitled, Stay in One Place Until You've Been Humbled, end quote. One chapter is entitled, Stay in One Place Until You've Been Humbled. And here's how Jack Miller describes it. The best way that servant leaders who are most like Christ, that kind of development takes place, is by staying under one set of leaders to give them enough time to know you so that the obvious impossibilities of ministry in your own strength can be pointed out and the young leader broken before the Lord to abandon all pride and move into Jesus' love. But usually this doesn't come very soon if a man moves about too much. <clears throat> it's one thing to see things happen with other people leading. It is quite another to see them happen to you and through you. And that always takes time and sweat. You know what Pastor Jack Miller is observing? It's straight from the scriptures and it's straight from the wisdom of life. You never, ever become more like Christ, a servant leader, humble and broken, really useful for his church, other than going through the desert. Leaders like this aren't formed outside of a desert. It takes time, it takes sweat, it takes perseverance. It takes where Miller says, where you are forced to abandon all pride, all self-sufficiency. You see, you thought you were so strong and so spiritual. When that is all depleted and gone, you move into the bosom and the arms of Christ's love. Oftentimes, don't we cry out to God, get me out of this place, please, please. It's my employer's fault, it's my spouse's fault, it's my friend's fault. It's my banker's fault. It's always, always someone else's fault. And we cry out to God, please get me out of this desert. I don't know how long, much longer I can take it. My soul is fainting. And yes, yes, God does hear you. But can I just encourage you, my friends, God absolutely hears and is answering your prayer, but he may not answer it the way you like. Because in as much as you're saying, please get me out of the desert, maybe it's God who put you in the desert in the first place. As much as you cry out to God, get me out of this place, God is saying, no, um, but for now, my love, my steadfast love. My friend, it's actually loving of God to leave you in the desert for a while because other ways or apart from the desert, you and I will never become more like Christ. The crisis, the desert, the cry out to God, and God does eventually deliver and he does what he wants to do. And then there's a call to give thanks. Here's the second strophe, the second paragraph. It begins at verses 10 uh, and goes to verse 16. Let me read it for us. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. 
Here it is in verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Here's the call, verse 15. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. So what is the crisis here? What's the crisis here? Darkness. Mention of death. And there's a mention of imprisonment. There's prison. Why? Because of rebellion. Make no mistake. Here, the crisis is brought on by, by us, by my choice, my, my irresponsibility, my fault. I broke the law. I went against something. And because of my rebellion, what, where do I end up? Let's call this death row. Darkness, death, and imprisonment. Death row. But verse 13, but then they cried. And as a result, God delivered them. Although God does not have to deliver us from what we deserve. And verse 15, the call, let them all give thanks. There are a lot of people who may mistake that being a Christian, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take away all your sins is like getting a get out of jail free card, like in the game of Monopoly. A lot of Christians are very naive. They think that because you're a Christian, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you always have this like get out of jail free card, like tucked in the back pocket of your pants. And it doesn't matter what you do through life. Jesus will always forgive me. Jesus will always forgive me. Jesus Yes, you're only having half the truth. Here's what Jesus died to forgive you from. Here's what Jesus died to set you free from. Jesus did die to forgive and cleanse you from all sins and save you from the worst kind of imprisonment and punishment that your sins do deserve. But Jesus did not die to set you free from every earthly or immediate or temporal imprisonment. Jesus did die for the worst kind and infinite eternal punishment and imprisonment that our sins bring about. But Jesus' death does not cover that if you break that law, you're going to pay a fine. That if you break that law, you might have to get that on your record. You see, there's another biblical principle that says what you sow is what you're going to reap. What you sow is what you reap. There are natural consequences. There are natural consequences. So if you're bad with money, really bad with money, again, thank God for my wife, but you don't save, you overborrow, you overleverage, you overspend, you may end up broke. Your credit rating just goes down the tubes. It hurts your financial future. That's a natural consequence. You have the tendency to talk about people a lot. Never go direct, never private, never loving, never courageous, but it's slanderous, it's always with a spin. You talk about other people. You know natural consequences of that? People eventually find out that you're always talking, you're always talking, always talking, and then you lose trust, you lose credibility, you lose friends, you lose relationships. You do poor work, you do poor work. Show up late, leave early, half-hearted, always have an excuse. You do poor work, natural consequence. You're gonna lose your work. Someone very dear to me, very dear to me, got caught for a DUI. 
drove on one day that, you know, your alcohol level is too high and a cop pulled her over and first time she had to actually spend time in, in jail. Overnight. Awful experience. But it was a convicting one. And I love her and I'm proud of her because I'm pretty certain that first imprisonment experience really had her see and show, oh, this is the cost of my rebellion. Oh, there's actual natural consequences to driving with DUI. And I know that this hasn't happened again. I pray that it'll never happen again. Here's the point of the psalm. Here's the point of the psalm. The worst thing in life for you is not that you go to jail. The worst thing that could ever happen to you and me is not that we actually get caught and we actually pay the natural consequences and we actually spend time in jail. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that even in jail, you never recognize the discipline of God. You never change. You never change. You see, in the second strophe, when the psalmist is saying, I ended up on death row because I chose it. I belong there. I went there. I pursued it. I had repeated patterns to get there. But when God actually sends the consequences and allows death row imprisonment to happen, any temporal consequence that would show the cost of rebellion and save you from worse consequences in this life or in the next life is actually an act of steadfast love. I'd rather be caught on the first instance of DUI than on the 10th instance of DUI where someone dies. I'd rather be caught lying and cheating to someone I love and trust who will respond with grace than to someone else who is just gonna utterly ruin your life. I'd rather be caught with some kind of sexual dabbling or addiction or some private little thing that you know can blow up to become a monster I'd rather be disciplined there because that is actually an act of God's steadfast love. Death row, imprisonment. You know the actual natural consequences, my friend? If you think about it spiritually, if you think about it from the lens of the Psalms, the psalmist ends up praising God. Listen, the psalmist here is not just ending up praising God. Thank you, God, you got me out of prison. Oh, of course, that's an obvious one. Who wouldn't thank God for getting out of prison? The psalmist, I assure you, is also thanking God that you set me there first. And my friend, have you ever experienced this in your life? Where God in his absolute sheer loving kindness for you withholds the kind of devastation or consequences that really should come and catches you in a way that is absolutely merciful and lenient. And when you recognize that that is the hand of God, you ought to give all the thanks in the world. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 reads this in verses six through eight. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses six to eight, it might be a chapter that a lot of us do not like. <clears throat> Even the author knows this. And so he writes it in this way, verse six. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To be loved by God does not negate or eliminate discipline. No, 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 no. The author actually says, if you have never recognized or received discipline from God, you should question if you're a legitimate son. But godly discipline, which all of us parents need to learn, and thank God, Pastor Jimmy, please teach us. Oh, we're lost here. Godly discipline with the love of God, you know what that means? You do it just right. You don't do it too strong or you don't do it too light. You don't go overboard. You don't go underboard, but you do it just right. And we got to learn from the word and learn from each other and learn from God. But when God disciplines his son and daughter, you ought to be assured. If you can trace back incidents in which you got caught, you got disciplined, you got humbled, you saw the cost of your rebellion, you saw how toxic or hurtful this is, and you cried out to God, and God came and changed and healed you, you ought to give thanks with all your heart. For that is an act of steadfast love. So the first crisis, desert, desert, going through dryness. Second crisis, you're on death row. Here's the third, here's the third, verses 17 to 22. Let me read that for us. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. What is the crisis here, my friends? What is this describing? It's directly the result of sin, and once again, some rebellions. This is directly, explicitly tied to my sin, and it produced a person who hated food, produced a person who was afflicted. I'm gonna call that disease. But in verse 19, they cried. And in the second half of verse 19, God delivered them. How did God deliver the people who were suffering disease? By using his word. And then verse 21, the call to give thanks. Let them thank the Lord. The Proverbs in particular is a marvelous medicinal book. Hard to understand but it's medicine for the soul. And there's a lot of Proverbs that tell you something like this. If you are physically sick, now I'm talking about physical illness here. Do not always assume that has a biological or medical cause. The Proverbs would suggest it could be a spiritual cause. Now again, not every sickness is due to sin, but in this strophe, clearly this sickness is due to their sin. And one proverb goes like this. You know a guilt-ridden soul? A soul that can never feel like you're forgiven from God. Maybe you can't forgive yourself because your pride is getting in the way. You think the blood of Jesus is not enough. It's, greater than, it's not greater than your own sin. But if you have a guilt-ridden soul, it, it talks about it. It wastes away your bones. It'll show in your countenance. It has physical effects. Those who are embittered, a pattern of embitterness, bitterness, and you've never really resolved that issue with the healing word of God. Bitterness will absolutely strap your joy and strength. You will be lethargic. You will get sick. And so here in this third strophe, when it talks about disease, how does God deliver his people when they cry out? 
He brings the healing, marvelous, medicinal power of God's word, which tells you things like this, which tells you things like this. You know, as you start 2018, is there a relationship right now, a relationship in which you know insofar as it's possible with you, you can be at peace with or confess or humble yourself? If so, your soul and your body will not be well until that is taken care of. The word of God also comes to you. Is there some habitual, repeated, unrepentant sin that you are harboring in your heart? It's just sitting there like a lodge and it's toxic. And when the word of God comes, when you meet the word of God with repentance and obedience. Here it says, God delivers you from your disease, from your distress. And all the people gather together to join in the call to give thanks for his steadfast love. Here's the fourth strophe, last one, and we're done. We're not going through the whole psalm, but only up to verse 32. Here's the fourth paragraph, first, uh, fourth strophe, verses 23 to 32. 23 to 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, verse 28, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Verse 31, the call. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. What is the crisis here? Storms, waves rise, winds rage, disaster, disaster. Oh, but in verse 28, we get to cry out to the Lord in our troubles and panic and distress. And in verse 28, it goes on to say, and God, although he does not have to, delivers his people from their fear and trouble and distress. He calms the storm. Waves are still. Verse 31, it closes with the pattern. Let us let them give thanks. Now, in the fourth strophe, when it comes to disaster, this one has nothing to do with our sin. It has nothing to do with spiritual causes. No need to blame yourself or even anyone else. It's just part of our fallen world. And it specifically mentions <clears throat> how people were going down on ships and doing business. They were doing business. And I would venture to guess that economic collapse or economic stress is one of the worst kinds, especially if you have a family to provide for. You hoped in something, you invested in something so deep, so long, does not turn out the way you wanted. You had a deal that was promised. It was violated or broken at the last minute. That kind of stress and anxiety, quote, ends up, according to the Psalter, they were at their wit's end. But even in disasters, that has nothing to do with our sin. You cry out to God and he delivers, he answers, he provides and there's a day of renewed, renewed thanks. In our very own Christian and Allura Spurlock, 
young, lovely couple who serve so faithfully for our church to make sure our worship and our sound and our AV and all of this is done well for the worship of God. They gave birth to a baby daughter, Lacey, about a month ago, December 4th to be exact. And when Lacey was born, Lacey could not breathe on her own. When Lacey was born, she could not breathe on her own. I heard a little bit of debate going back between Christian and Laura about how long that was. I thought it was 45 minutes. Christian swears, someone told me it's 45 minutes. Laura said, stop exaggerating, it was 30 minutes. I said, either way, that's way too long. Anything beyond one minute, way too long for your newborn baby not, not to be able to breathe. Well, the hospital, thank God for medical science and technology, and they had the baby breathing. And so cries went out from the Spurlocks to our staff, their friends, elders, saying this is what's happening. And we prayed and prayed and prayed with love and fervency and we visited and there was a lot of anxious waiting. I don't know how anxious they were. I was really anxious. Took a week and a half for Lacey to be observed, examined, prolonged waiting to see if there had been damage done to the brain, if there's something else wrong with their body, the doctors couldn't figure out why she couldn't breathe when she was first born. We were all waiting and praying after a week and a half. And at Long Beach Memorial Hospital, Lacey came to be known by people who worked there as the miracle baby. The miracle baby. I was standing right here getting ready for worship service on December 17th. Mark that day. That's December 17th. That's 13 days after Lacey was born. Allura walked up with her. I almost went into shock because I've never seen any of your infants within two weeks. You hide them for two months <laughs> for the danger of germ or pollution or something. And we have this miracle baby who just went through that for a week and a half. And I saw her at worship service on December 17th. How loving and how powerful and good is our God when his people pray. There is absolute privilege and power when people pray. Miracles happen. And we get to, at the end, see God deliver from impending disaster. Give thanks to the Lord for a steadfast love together. Let me close with this. So you start the new year. All self-reflection cannot be done well. It's very limited without God reflection. Let me just give us three basic principles of biblical interpretation. How you can best understand or apply the Bible. Number one, notice repetitions and patterns. Notice repetitions and patterns. I gave you the pattern. Crisis, call. I mean, crisis, cry out in a call to give thanks. If you look at verse 1 and 43, you'll see the same word appear. The steadfast love or the loving kindness of the Lord. It's called a grammatical device. Again, that's a pattern where it begins and ends with the steadfast love of the Lord. So it must be that this whole psalm is about the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice repetitions and patterns. Here's number two. Here's number two. And there's no substitute. There's no way around this. If you want to become not just a scholar in the scriptures, but you really want to become a student and follower of Jesus, and you really want Jesus to affect and change your life, there's no way around number two. You cannot click on the scriptures for about two minutes and go do something else. 
You can't just give a cursory glance. You can't just give a mild glance, five minutes here and there. No, no. You must give repeated readings through the scriptures. Read, read again. Reread. Reread again. Repeat. And that is actually called the discipline of meditation. And the more meditation and rereading, rereading and repetition you do, you are not allowing just the memory of God's word to sink into your soul. You know what's, most, you know, you know what's best? It's the movement of God's spirit where you begin to sense God's spirit is actually talking to you and wants to touch you and heal you and love you and bless you in ways that the world could never produce. And after repeated readings, you'll notice the pattern. You'll come up with a clear summary There are countless ways to give thanks for the countless acts of God's steadfast love. Here's a third. Here's a third. Maybe the most important. And I believe it down to my bones. It's my passion. It's my DNA. It's the name of our church. And I assure you, I believe this is the way the scriptures are to be understood, not just at our church, but all churches. Look for Christ central. Look for Christ central. You know what I mean by that? Don't just look for principles and tips to improve your life. Look for a person. Don't just look at the passage right in front of you. Actually have a wider lens. Try to fit the puzzle all together. Try to ask the question, why do I have Psalm 107? Why does it belong in the Bible? How does it all come together? I'll tell you how it all comes together. It definitely all comes together with Christ at the center. He's the answer to the whole puzzle. So, how does Psalm 107 connect to the centrality of Christ? How does Psalm 107 have anything to do with Christ? Do you find Jesus Christ written here? It's in the Old Testament. This is hundreds of years before he was born. Harold, what are you doing? What are you people doing? Here's what I'm doing. I'm doing what the New Testament authors do. I'm doing what Christian people should do. There's many ways you can connect to the centrality of Christ, but I'll give you a general one. The reason why you and I have countless ways to give thanks to God for his steadfast love is because you and I get what he deserves. The only reason why you and I can cry out to God and God delivers us over and over and over and over again and we result in renewed praise and thanks to God is because the children of God receive what Jesus Christ deserves because Jesus Christ got what you and I deserve. Because you know, Jesus Christ did go to a desert. And he literally went into a desert. For 40 days he fasted and he was, he was thirsty and he got tempted by the devil. And at that cross, when he died for people's sins, he said, I thirst. Jesus ended up on death row. Not because of his sin, our sins. He ended up on death row. Jesus ended up on death row. What's he doing there? Well, Psalm 107 explains it to you. The reason he ends up on death row is because of your and my sin. Put him there. Oh, you go on and you read about how Jesus Christ at the cross, not only did he say, I thirst, not only did he end up Going through death row, his bones were wasting away. They were breaking. They did literally break his bones. He went through physical disease and affliction. And last but not least, disaster fell upon him. Utter disaster. The worst kind of disaster. The worst kind of imprisonment. So that when you and I 
cry out to God, no matter what you're going through, you can rest assured God not only listens to you, turns his full attention to you, because he turned his attention away from his son. And he is nothing but the steadfast love of God in his plans to be poured out for you. So let us give thanks, not at home, not over the internet. The psalm says, in worship together. Let us all give thanks, a heightened, renewed, deeper thanks, not just with the voice or with our mouths, but with all of our lives for the countless acts of steadfast love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your beloved people, <coughs> new friends and old, here at Christ Central. We ask, oh God, through this brief study in hearing of your word, please bring to us nothing less than meeting and worshiping and falling in love with Jesus more. We look for you, Jesus, because you're the only one that makes sense of the story of scriptures and has the power to shape our own. We look for you, Jesus, because you're the only one who can save us and change us inside out. So may we now, O oh Lord, bring us all into your arms. May we fall there, rest there in faith, and love you all the more, not just with our, li or with our lips, but the entirety of our lives. May it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.